Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Our little program, published or not, is a small half hour stolen from amongst the pressures and constraints of life. We are bound by social norms and pressures normally, but our escape is talking to authors. Well, my author today has addressed these constraints and strictures and and the shackles of life in some ways. The book is A Stolen Season, and the author is the multi-award winning Rodney Hall. So, Rodney, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now... You want me to start with the Mayan Temple. Well, I think I'm, it's a simple way of starting. I'm throwing all my <laughs> notes out. But we have, uh, in a sort of incidental to the main narrative yep. that's taking place in this book, two, alter- not alternative stories, but interludes, one of which is the story of Mariana, Mariana Gluck, who's climbing a Mayan temple. Yeah, that's all she does. And that's all she does. <laughs> but... In thinking about it, she's looking and trying to find meaning in her life and going back to the constraints and strictures that were in the Mayan society. Yes, because the the temples are constructed on a very peculiar mathematical basis of 13 and 20. And she gets the idea, which is my idea and I think it's probably wrong, but she gets the idea that the, is there, she asks herself while she's trudging up this thing, is there such a thing as 13 in nature? Well, yes. And, and then is. she realises there is, that there are 13 full moons every year. But you have then, this is the religious uh, nature of the Mayan culture that constrained it, that bound it almost to building this temple, this Tower of Babel. And that, that is, in a funny sense, in a sort of sense, meaningless. And, and it's about the kind of power of the state to victimise its citizens because these were slave-built and once built, they, people were sacrificed on them. But also then it you touch on how religion in many ways constrains our life because one of the uh, impressions we have of uh, Mariana is after she's made a suicide attempt, two fishermen sprang to the rescue, flung themselves on her and dragged her up into the lethal air, spread-eagling her on the beach, they crucified her with tender care. Mm-hmm. You're taking the religious imagery and yeah, inverting sure, it. Sure, sure. And that, I suppose, you know, that's sort of, as you say, the third of the way through the book. So to go back to the beginning, you know, what's immediately there for the reader is a thing we all know, that our governments lied to us about the Iraq war and sent our troops into someone else's country and a fascinating and ancient country to bomb it and shell it for a known lie. And how would you feel if you were a soldier who was lethally wounded, I mean, for life? Well, you've, you've now jumped into the main, that's the uh, main narrative. That's the main narrative. But, so behind that, Mariana, uh, religious strictures, etc. So what we have in the main narrative is the story of Adam and um, Bridget. Bridget and Adam, as you say, has gone into uh, the ancient world of yeah. Iraq, the fat where civilization, in many ways as we know it, was founded. And the first image we have of him is 
virtually climbing a temple, so to speak, with... Um, yeah, with the tower with the in tower. Samara, yes. In Samara. The mud brick tower stands in ancient Samara, a city known to Alexander the Great. But he is um, basically almost destroyed physically. Yes. He's pulled yes. apart. And yeah. so he becomes the first Adam because the way you then describe him is as pulp. Uh, yeah, yes, he is. He, look, he looks like a chunk of dead coral. He floats in numbness, a curled fetus, bobbing on an ocean of discomfort, baffled that death repeatedly fails to finish him off. Right from the first moment, when he regained consciousness, he knew he'd been reduced to living pulp. So in some ways, you're taking things back to their oh, primordial yeah, yes, basis. Yes. There. And, and there's a sort, of, a sort of reflection of that in the third stream, which is about John Philip. Hardingham, who's a man whose life is ruined by too much money. The, well, the 400 years of family money, he doesn't know who he is, he can afford anything. So you're, you're jumping again on me here, because that's another well, the interlude. Book that. the, the book does that. <laughs> but uh, you've got um, John Philip, who has inherited money. He is bound by the strictures of yep. his inheritance, yep. but he's also found some... Uh, well, been, uh, he has inherited... Some Turner etchings, which are they're, uh, they're pencil drawings. They're pencil drawings yes. of uh, naked um, pretender, yeah, shall we say? Yeah, just, yes. uh, because we can't use other words like that on radio. And he builds his own edifice yes. and tower yeah, sure, to that. Sure. So, yeah, each... thank you for that. That's good. Good perception. That you know, all those connections. The, the reader may expect to have things sort of laid out with signposts and things, but that's not the way I work. Mm. I, 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 what you're seeing is what I'm hoping of the reader, that the reader sort of darts around and kind of sees connections without being told them. Well, those two interludes of Mariana Gluck and John Philip uh, do have a physical connection because Adam... Uh, has given blood so Mariana can survive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, John Philip uh, has a connection, one of uh, yeah, well, Adam's... He, he, yes, 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 nemesis. And it's, it, and it's, we don't want to give too much away. But then, in that story, but, no, no, yeah. we, we won't. So there's a physical connection. But what actually connects them more fully is the, the concepts that you're bringing to the fore of what constrains us in life. The religious, Mariana more yeah. particularly, because of the Mayan yeah, temple, sure. uh, but even what we think is socially acceptable, and and we build towers to our own. And in a, in a kind of joke that I built into it, I, I I do that with the structure of it because when I was writing it, as I say, I don't have any plan ever. Um, as it evolved, I thought, what if I defy the principle of only connect and that there's no connection between so I played with that and I worked with that for quite a while and right till the end of the first draft there was no actual there were echoes but no actual connection between the three strands and then one night and I do often work in my sleep one night I woke 2.30 in the morning and I know when this happens, you have to get up, you have to put the light on, you have to get out and write things down, otherwise you, you don't remember them. And I wrote what was nearly a page of writing, went back to bed and thought it'll be crap when I wake up in the morning. I got up in the morning and it is now roughly the last two pages of the book because in a dream I saw how these three strands were profoundly connected 
um, even though the characters didn't know each other. Well, but, but what you're doing is with those concepts. So, and the story of Adam and Bridget then looks in more detail at the concepts that restrain us because you've brought yeah, Adam sure. back to the sure. primordial. You then, he's then in a contraption. He's been brought back to life, so to speak. But the only way he can move is in a contraption. Exoskeleton. Exoskeleton. Yeah. So the technology yeah. has enabled him to survive. But all of a sudden then, uh, and it's his thoughts that motivate this it's machine. It's his thoughts that motivate it, yeah. So from pulp to thought. Yeah. But then this places Bridget in an invidious situation because her, her the image we see of her her equal teeth, intact acrylic nails, her blemish-free cleavage. She's that model of perfection. Mm. And so the contrasting there. Mm. But they are a married couple, but... They they've have, separated. They've separated. They were about to go their own ways. Yeah. This has not necessarily brought them back together. It's forced them yeah. together because of the expectation around yeah. them. And well, so you're still s- technically married, yes. And so yeah. you start then exploring and building... Yeah. The what is constraining them, but then on the one hand you have natural desire, you have um, Adam still capable of having an erection, but in a hideous body, so yeah. to speak, spilling a stored never to be generation on the one hand, and you've got Bridget's desire that she wants to fulfil physical desire. So these have been. Separated, but out. no longer with him. But no longer with him. But these forces are still compelling. Yeah, us. yeah sure. No, you're exactly right, David. That's exactly right. And that's, then that's the intention. That's the intention. I'm glad I read it properly. <laughs> but then behind that, you have the pressures of the military complex, yes. so to speak, who want to keep Adam alive. This is what we're doing yeah. for our vets, yeah. and the media as well that are yeah. interplaying yeah. here as well. So yeah. you brought those two forces in, yeah. and. Um, then, basically, um, this builds because all of these forces, the military complex, the media, the desire, our own physical uh, presence, inheritance, social expectation. Can we ever escape these forces? Ah, oh, well, that's a big question. Well, um, you've posed that in your <laughs> yeah, novel. Yeah, in, yeah. This is what the novel's about in many ways. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's a curious thing when you... To put together, I mean, as I was working at the book, I was thinking, nobody is going to publish this. I mean, nobody is going to publish this. And I've thought that many times because the, the way I work, I must have begun at least 20 or 30 novels that got anything between 5,000 and 80,000 words done before I realised it's not going anywhere. Because they have to somehow generate a life that directs me. So it's like they take over. And if they don't, I know they're not going to work. And uh, it was... But, yeah, anyway. Well, this brings a whole other question to the fore, then, in terms of what drives us. So, in many ways, you're talking about an instinctive drive that's inherent, whereas the novel touches on all the other forces like inheritance, social expectation, yeah. religion. Yeah. So what is driving us? What is compelling us? Well, I mean, it's, the, you know, I, it's my belief that we are profoundly social animals. It's not, nothing new in that. And that society is the expression of ourselves, not the striving individual that M- Maggie Thatcher put to us. 
um, and that we will seek society uh, perhaps above all else. I mean, uh, to breed, yes, of course, but, but the breeding process is a social process. And so I'm very interested in the notion of how we create a society out of the people we know. And the sort of there's a moment in which, with the Chinese guy who moves next door, Adam cogitates for a moment on the mystery of friendship. And it seems even more mysterious to him as he thinks about it than having a lover, because there's a function to that, whereas a friend is like some curious abstract gift. And how do we trust someone who looks very different from us and has a completely different background? You also talk about the constraints of language, too. It comes, comes in here as well. Yeah, that, sure. That restricts or liberates us in yeah. some ways. Sure, and it's just, you know, look, when I was young, when I was 22, and I did a, a wonderful, foolish thing and walked around Europe for three years, sort of a 9,000-kilometre walk, in the course of it, I called on Robert Graves, and I was 22 and he was about 66, 67, and I was unannounced, and he very kindly gave me two of the most wonderful hours of conversation imaginable. And we became friends, and he looked at things of mine in subsequent years, and we re-met and so on. Um, and hence the book is partly dedicated to him. But um, he said a number of wonderful things to me, and one of them was, and he looked at some poems. I mean, when he sat me down, he said, clearly you're writing, so show me what you've written. And I said, well, my notebook is not really legible to me. And he said, read it to me. So I read him three of the poems I'd written since I'd walked from Genoa to Barcelona before getting the boat to Dea. Um And he said, oh, I don't have to tell you anything about that. The poems stand, which was sort of astonishing to me because I hadn't published to that stage and it was just the m most amazing moment. But he said, if you ever get to write prose and it's fiction, remember there's two basic rules. Rule number one, write first. Rule number two, research afterwards. Because if you don't write first, you don't know what you need to know. And if you don't research afterwards, nobody will believe you. <laughs> and uh, it was just amazing advice and sort of launching out. And it's been a cross as well as a liberation to me because launching out into the writing first process is how I, anyway, get a lot, lot of things wrong um, because you, you, you kind of get stuck in a kind of rut of thinking, I've got to pursue this. And eventually you think the rut is a rut and just give it away. Um, and sort of waving goodbye to large amounts of work is never easy. Well, and then you've got to apply a judgment and um, the strictures of um, what will be read and published and all the other f sorts of forces come into play. Unfortunately, Rodney, we are going to have to end the interview yeah. because we have another... We could have talked for the full half hour, but Jan has her guest. Yes, yes. So the book is A Stolen Season. Uh, Rodney Hall is the author and Picador, which is a um, Pan Macmillan release. So, yes. Rodney, thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Well, for me now, do you know the saying, boys will be boys? How should troublesome boys be disciplined? juvenile detention centres, remand, open prisons. Robert Lukens has written The Everlasting Sunday. He doesn't really answer the question, does, but does make us think. Welcome, Robert. Oh, thanks for having me. Your book takes place in just a short time. Where and when? Mm, it's set over a single winter, so it's set over the winter of 1962-63 in rural Shropshire. And it's a winter that became known as the Big Freeze. It was a catastrophic winter for Britain. 
people were the the Britain ground to a halt. People were trapped in their homes. Um, Premier League football was cancelled. You know, end of the world type stuff. Oh my goodness! Uh, and it's and it's set in this in this home for young people who have been found by trouble. And it's about how they survive that winter and each other, and and about how they might survive the rest of their lives. Well, let's get back to this one particular boy, seventeen year old Radford, and let's hear a little bit about the book because he's a he's a London boy, and here he is being driven by his uncle to this manor, this old house. I'll just read a little bit. Yes, please. They ground on, the machine fighting the incline of rising land. Grazing fields on either side supported the occasional farmhouse or shed. Hills presented like frozen sea swells spotted with huddled animals. He had heard of these beasts they called stock. Seemed an unnecessary joke to call them stock while alive, then slaughter them, dry them, grind and cube them, only to call them stock again. He'd also heard of sheep sitting and finding themselves stuck with ice to the ground. They had to be found and freed lest they never stood again. Did they fleece the unfortunate ones? Almost certainly. Did they wait for them to thaw? Perhaps not. Either way, they completed that short round trip back to stock. Keep your eyes out, the uncle would repeat each time they might have travelled a mile. Right. Well, so they finally get to this manor. It's an old house. It's got... um, Oh, chimneys. It's, 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 it's a nice old house. In what could only have been pouting retaliation, signals of life came crowding into view as a final corner was turned and a slope's crest was breached. The boy saw the peaked maroon roofs of buildings. Smoke rejoiced from chimneys. A copse of amber trees gave way to a long brick wall and the opening of a driveway between two piers. A tarnished green sign hung in storybook fashion against the stone. Goodwin Manor. Well, so we, we get this whole idea about Radford being uh, curious and he's noticing things, but what has he used as his own defence mechanism? Mm. Silence. Mm. <laughs> he just doesn't talk. And uh, so he, he's finally let up. Um, and he learn, we learn that all the boys in this, in this old house are all called by their last name. But then there's Teddy. Who's mm. Teddy? Teddy is ostensibly the the curator of this this establishment. He's he's the the caretaker, he's the he's the top banana in this place. So he in in theory he's the person looking after all these boys in this house. But I suppose as the story goes on, that relationship of, of where he sits in that house and what his purpose is starts to ebb and flow a little bit and you, you, you come to see mm. the how he fits in with these young people in the house and how he might feel more like one of them. His name is Edward Wilson, but he says to um, Radford, don't call me sir and don't call me Mr Wilson. Most of the boys here call me Teddy. Now, the, his first words to uh, after this were to, you are terribly lonely, aren't you? Mm. No, it's not welcome. It's not. It's just, you are terribly, yes. And it's it's one of the first words that um, that Radford actually speaks. And then his, his first decision is to give Radford a room. What does he do to the young boy who's living in that room? Well, yeah, he, he enacts what, what goes on to be one of his key... Uh, ways he deals with issues in the place he he disrupts so he he casts one of the other boys out into the chicken coop uh 
ostensibly just to to, <laughs> to see what he'd make of it, and but also just as as a as a slight whim, and I think to some extent he doesn't actually think it'll actually carry through, but the rest of the boys make sure that it does. So this group of boys, and there's in this house, there's lots of different groups. There's the mm. sporty group, the music group, but this group that uh, Radford finds himself in uh, take it upon themselves to move all of. Uh, Richie's stuff down mm. to the chicken coop. Mm. So, and that's where, but they also let Richie sleep on their floor if it's yeah. too cold. And it is, it is so cold. It's in this broken down manner that West, another boy, and Radford um, find a special place in the belfry. Mm. Yeah, it's so it's a. It's a, it's a once – so the, the belfry is now missing its roof, it's missing its bell, so it's basically just a small well to infinity and it's a place that they – And it's an open spot so they can look mm. down at what's happening in the rest of the grounds as well. Yeah. And, of course, they take to smoking there. But that's not as all they do. In this group that cements itself, they go to the cemetery and I think this was one of the funniest games I've ever heard. Young boys, there's cigarettes, there's alcohol involved. And what do they do in the cemetery? Well, they as as people do when they need to find things to do, they they go out to the cemetery and they uh, they conduct wakes for these these long forgotten unheralded uh, strangers out in the field, and they they take great delight in inventing the the stories for these people and having them finally be told. So, you know, one of the boys explains to Radford, "It's all jokes. You're part of it. Friends play, so we play." And this allows Radford to actually voice himself. You know, he comes up with the most stupid story about mm. what happened to this poor fellow. Look, really great fun. And, and this group really does cement itself. So let's look at discipline. Now, I think the, the most controlling person in here is the cook, of course. When you think <laughs> about boys, you think of their stomachs. And it's Miss Lillian Grange. They can all call her Lillian, but only a very few can call her Lil. Only those that have earned her respect. Mm. And in contrast to this, Dr. Cass comes mm. in. He's a psychologist, or we assume. And what does, what does he think how boys should show respect? Well, in all, in all the typical ways that you'd imagine of the old world, I suppose. And it's again, it's this idea of silence. The imposed silence or voluntary silence is such an important part of this book. And, and the Dr. Cass char- character obviously um, is very deeply attached to the old-fashioned idea of imposed silence. Um, uh, yeah, and it's interesting, this idea of, of and interesting you brought up about names, mm. this idea of stories that what a lot of the characters in this, in this book don't have a lot. They come from places where they they don't carry anything with them, uh, materially or otherwise. But the power that's involved in that you have your story. You might not have much, but you have your story. And the choice of when and to whom and to what extent you share that story is such a powerful thing. And and it's not about repression or stiff upper lip Britishness. It's just about knowing that the power of of, no, of who you share that with, and even we feel that in our own lives, even the people we work with and we don't know their name due to our nearest and dearest in our family, we know the parts of them that they bring into our lives or we know the parts where our stories intersect. And there's such a power in that and it extends to things like names and what you can and can't call people. And I just was really interested in that idea of, the again, the, the power of sharing your own story. And the stories. So, uh, you know, Teddy explains to Radford what he's done with his file. What has he done to it? Well, yeah, it, it, it 
transpires that he's cast it into the flames. Fed the fire with it, like the others. Teddy mm. calls all of the boys, you know, different names, you poor brood, you pigs, you cherubs, you young brutes, and his policy is just to keep them alive. Mm. I'm not the one who will give you what you need. You are to look after each other. And he takes them out to places, takes Radford out and tells him stories about the great, the Royal Oak. Mm. And he also takes them, takes Radford to this uh, trees where all the starlings are brooding. And and only then does Radford notice what's on the ground. Mm. Mm. The The dead ones. The dead bodies. Because it's so cold. Mm. And what I was fascinated by, you've actually made winter a character. Yeah, and I took great pleasure in that when I eventually stumbled across that. This this book I wrote with, a, uh, and it's interesting hearing Rodney talk about not writing with a plan. This was a very, uh, very important to me that I came to this with a blank page. I came to this with nothing, and I let myself for the first time in all my years of trying to write to, to give myself that license for my mind to just take me to those places that it wanted to, and I would find myself writing these passages that I didn't know where they were coming from. I didn't know what the voice was, but I let myself keep going in a way that in the past I would have I would have analysed what was happening. And these, this, these descriptions kept coming in. It wasn't quite a narrator. It wasn't mm. God. It wasn't... I didn't know who this voice was, but I kept writing and I kept writing these passages and then very near the end of the book it suddenly occurred to me this was Winter itself viewing this. Well, let's hear one of those. Let's hear from page 108. Winter, the voice of Winter, which... Winter held the house by its roof and shook, longing for cracks through which it could plunge its arms and choke these prideful creatures. Its moon face remained without expression. These vainglorious clowns, they would repent. They would repent, these vainglorious clowns. Now, there's another quote. With the worsening weather, Radford has... Has noticed frustration showing itself more regularly in the manor. Fights and shouting matches bursting like sparks, but distinguishingly as quickly an effort was being made. Coiled punches held back. So this whole building up, we know winter's building up this tension. And then what does Teddy do? He decides to sail a boat. That was just so funny. Yeah, it's interesting, it's, and it and links into this idea of this isn't a book of answers. This isn't this isn't an idea of of the best way to deal with uh, you know delinquent children, if we want to call them that, or, or people that have been found by trouble. And part of this house is, I'm, who knows if what Teddy is doing is a good mm. idea or not, or if this house is good. It's not about that, but it's it might be enough that what he gives them in this house is a moment of peace that they can carry with them through their lives, that mo- that little shard that you can carry in your pocket for the rest of your life, and maybe that's enough, and maybe that's all it can offer. And this, this time when he, in the middle of all this, has hatched this plan to... And, and this did come from coming stumbling across some photographs in, in the big freeze of people shod the disused boat out in their uncle's shed with some great metal blades, and they would take these out onto the water because... The Thames froze over, parts of the sea froze over. This was a land of ice. So these boats would be shot out and they would construct a sail and you would have a, 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 a boat with... But even moving this boat from the farm down mm. to the river, you know, a quote, slavish work taken to with fevered relish. You know, it was just this, this 
Yeah, and the, <laughs> this release, this release, exactly. And they're taken out, and again, it's like they're just getting outside. So they've been in this in this petri dish environment for so long. So these going out to the belfry or any of these moments mm. to have some air or to see the sky, they have offered such relief. And this work was welcomed, as we all are. You know, it's like, oh, the long Christmas holiday, and you just long to do some housework, do anything to get out of this in this place. Talking about this, just as it's sort of giving like this fun thing that they did its own history because the book is called An Everlasting Sunday Mm. and Sundays are usually the day, the day of rest, the day that we put aside as doing something different. Yeah, and it's Sunday to me and it's something that I carried through from childhood. Sundays are supposed to be the day of peace, aren't they? And they're supposed to be this day, but they're weighed down. Mm. For me, they are eternally weighed down with the promise of what's to come. Sunday, there is there is there a more concentratedly depressing moment than 5 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon when that thought occurs of what's going to happen tomorrow morning? When the news comes on on Sunday night, it's the herald of the day to come and the week to come. So that Sunday that should be rest is forever poisoned with the prospect of Monday. You know, you picked it that way, but me as a reader, <laughs> I thought something really nastily happened to Radford. Rad, uh, Radford. Every mm. Sunday night, mm. and yeah. I, anyway, I'm sticking with my. I, you, <laughs> no, no, and, and, and I'm very, and I'm very purposely. There's a lot of white space in this oh. book for the reader, and that's. And look, it's it's a story of growing up, learning about yourself, and what it takes to just survive. Oh goodness gracious me! Look, I thought it was a great book. I, I saw bits of Marcus Zusak, you know, the, the book thief with the narrator's death. I, mm. I it just it got me that whole way, and. I've been talking with Robert Lukens about his book, The Everlasting Sunday, published by University of Queensland Press. And I have been talking to Rodney Hall, A Stolen Season, and we've now got to conform to the shackles of the radio station and uh, close up... Depart. Depart. (laughs) Ruminations is at the door. Thanks again for listening.